Welcome back to Cashflow Legends. Uh, I'm excited to be here and talk about a thought that really permeates through the whole financial world and how we think about money. Uh, Brock and Nate, we're going to be discussing this idea of risk and security as it relates to your money and how you handle your money. So let's just dive right in. Most of the time, when we get to interact with someone that is newly coming to the idea of infinite banking or the idea of certainty and control and how their money flows, there is a hurdle that has to be overcome. And it's one of the first hurdles typically that relates to how risk and security go together. And Nate, I know you and I had a big hurdle that we had to overcome because we thought that the only way we could get security was to take risk. So kind of frame up our conversation today, starting with how you view or how you maybe you used to view risk and security related to your money and maybe a little bit of how you view it now. And then we'll dive in from there. I think the, the risk and security aspect of, of the way I used to think about is probably very similar to the way a lot of people think about. And I say that because yesterday I had a conversation with a doctor and we went through his financial plan as far as how we were going to reposition, reallocate and, and actually put him in a very positive position and give him a lot of certainty and control. And the question was posed to him, is there any reason why you wouldn't want to do this? And he said, the only reason I can think of is really stupid. But he said, what I'm doing now is mindless. I don't have to think about it. And what most people believe today is that giving someone else sort of, um, transferring that control and transferring that responsibility over to someone else gives us the greater chance of winning, gives us a greater chance of security and things like that. But it only takes a little bit of education and a little bit of understanding as far as how money works in order for you to understand that that certainty and control and responsibility really needs to be on you, not on someone else. And so much of what I did for so long was giving it over to other people. And even though I wasn't crazy about that, at that point in my life, I didn't feel like I could do any better because I had not taken time to actually study and learn how money actually worked. Um, I, everything that I understood about money was just based on what someone else had told me, not someone, not what I'd actually gone and dug in and learned for myself. And so I was dependent on other people and talking heads out there who were talking about money, who had mainstream flat platforms in order to do that, which most mainstream platforms that people have give them the opportunity to just turn everybody back to the stock market. And not that there's necessarily anything wrong with the stock market in general, but what we have a problem with is people who blindly put money into things that they don't understand. And I didn't understand a mutual fund. 
I just knew I put money into it and it could grow or it was supposed to grow, but I didn't really understand what that was about. And so I felt secure in what I was doing. I felt like it was fairly low risk in what I was doing. But once I actually pulled the curtain back and started to understand, I realized that, wow, I was completely uh, subject to someone else's decisions as far as what they were going to do with that ultimately. And so the security and risk, um, you know, aspect of our financial life really goes down, boils down to what is your level of education and what is your level of certainty and control in what you're doing? And we talk about so often like investments specifically, the biggest risk of any investment is how we understand it is our education in that investment. And just because I can put money into one thing and it do really well, doesn't necessarily mean that somebody else is going to have the same result because I might understand something that they don't understand. And, um, so anyways, I, I think the, that whole security and risk thing just boils down to how we are looking at the value of the control and the certainty in what we're doing and looking at the value of that education and what that brings because the value of the education that we have today versus six years ago like I, we can't even really quantify what that has done up till this point and what it's going to do in the future. Right. What do you think? You know, whenever I take a look at investments, one of the things that you have to understand is you need a filter in which you look at um risk and security how you look at investments how you look at advice and when it comes to investments and in, in, in putting your money somewhere you should understand that the risk is in the investor not necessarily in the investment um, who you place your money with their knowledge their understanding goes a long ways because you know there are a lot of people who just can't invest in some things because they're just not either uh, they don't have enough income they don't have enough assets or they just don't qualify okay because there are some things in our financial world that you have to qualify um to invest in um and so one of the things that you know you got to understand is like hey if i'm going to put money in the market because this is the only place i can put it into it's either the market or myself well then i need to ask myself okay well how do i invest in the market do i do it through uh an account well, what's the account that I invest through? How does that work? How does the money going in affect the money coming out? How does the growth work? How does the losses work? And once you can understand really the physics of money and how that works, you begin to get, gain a greater knowledge of what's going on with your dollars in the environment that you place them in. Yeah, a key theme I hear both of you saying that I completely agree with because I did the same thing for almost 15 years. I put the required amount into my teacher retirement system, which was not a negotiation. I had no say in it. 
So that was coming out automatically. I had no clue where it was going, how it was being used until like Nathan said, I started pulling the curtain back on what I didn't understand. And then I became very frustrated because I'd already, it took very little research for me to realize that the government had already bailed out the teacher retirement system once in my 15 years of education. So then a red flags start popping up everywhere. So it's interesting to me, Nate mentioned the doctor and we've had many conversations with doctors and I'm sure Brock has too. They often seem to be by their own admittance, the most taken advantage of working class of almost anybody because they work so many hours and have a high income that they're like, uh, easy game, easy prey. I'm not saying people are preying on them on purpose, but it seems to happen often because they don't have enough time to spend learning. So then they fall back on what Nate referenced. Um, it's easy. <laughs> the devil, you know, is better than the one you don't kind of, you know, I, I don't know all the details about this, but I know that at least I'm appearing to be doing what everybody else is doing. And that gives us some kind of peace of mind. And I experienced the same thing with the teacher retirement system and maxing out Roth IRAs. And, and I wasn't on a high income for everybody. Listen, I was on a middle school principal income in a little bitty town in East Texas. We were not making bukus of money, but I was still doing all the things I was told to do, but I couldn't tell you why. So Brock, you brought up a great point there. And this is something I can say with confidence now that I couldn't six years ago. It is not necessary to take risk to gain certainty and control over your money doing what you want it to do for you. I would actually argue very confidently now that you can stabilize understanding how to invest in yourself first and why to create more peace of mind with less fear, less anxiety, less risk, and create a greater lifestyle than you ever could have going and chasing risk. I've chased enough risk to be able to confidently tell you that most of it ends in a way that's not pretty. And I, I did, I'm just telling you, I, we don't have to dive into that now, but it's been enough that I can say that confidently. Nate and I have seen it. Nate and I have experienced it. Brock's seen it. He's probably experienced it, which is very key here. So let's, let's connect that to what most people say is a fear or a mindset or common misconceptions, kind of like the Dr. Nate alluded to. There's some misconceptions there. There's maybe some fear there. There's some mindset shifts that have to occur. So this is what I really love about what we get to do. We are spending a ton of time with people, helping them figure out what questions they value as most important to then go on a journey of learning that will benefit them the most with no expectation other than, do you want to continue to learn or not? And then you come up with the action steps that you feel best about through a series of questions and evaluations and really just helping someone understand why they're doing what they're doing. And if you can't this, let's let this sink in on fear mindset real quick, and then I'll pass it on. If you, if you don't know why you're doing what you're doing, which we're all guilty of, I know I am. Why would you keep doing it? I mean, just let that sink in for a second. 
it would be like driving down the highway with your eyes closed. I know I'm driving, but I don't know why I'm going this way or where I'm going or how I'm going to get there, but I'm still doing it. I mean, a wreck is bound to happen. Okay. And that is most people's financial situation that we see. And between Nate, Brock and I, and the connections we have with people who've done this for 20, 30 years, that is very common. And notice I didn't say anything about income and how much you make. It's about mindset. So Nate, talk a lot about, talk some about emotions and mindset and misconceptions that you see often, maybe in your own life and other client interactions and member interactions and how that often when infinite banking becomes a part of the solution they want to dive into keyword there. I said a part, it's a piece. Okay. It's going to make everything else more stable. What do you see often or what have you experienced in mindset and emotions and behavior? I think there's a, a real fear of doing something out of the box, doing something different. Um, you know, separating yourself from the masses. There's, there's a real fear in that. Um, and it's one of the reasons I think whenever we're working with, with clients, I, I know just recently there was a, there was an example where someone had, um, money in a, a broker's account and it was down and you know, the, the, uh, financial advisor is typically going to say, Hey, you don't want to sell when you're down. You know, that's the worst time to sell when you're down, but how bad does it have to go down? How much does it have to go down before you would consider doing something different? Um, because when it, the reason why emotion is tied to a lot of people's financial statements that they get on their accounts is because anytime they see a loss that represents time and momentum that they can never get back. And there's a lot of people's emotions that are tied directly to their 401k statement. And when they see that happening, it just, it locks them up. It, it, I mean, there's, there's fear that comes, that sets in. There's a whole lot of freedom. I can say today from not worrying about what the market's doing. Uh, we still have conversations with people about what the market's doing because we're working with people who have money in the market, but I don't, I don't know. I, I can't really, I can't really empathize in the, in the middle of that conversation. I can't really empathize with losing money in the market because that's not something that I pay attention to anymore. It's not something that I'm dependent on. Um, but this, uh, this risk profile that people are participating in, the further away that, that we move our money away from us, you know, the more hands that it has to pass through in order to get a return or something like that, the more risks that we tend to take on. That's why we talk about, we like to put money into things that we have some level of control over. 
you know, that we can, um, we can make decisions in those things. <clears throat> and when you look at the risk profile of becoming your own banker, taking control through the infinite banking concept, some of the questions that we get sometimes is, you know, what's the risk with infinite banking? Well, the biggest risk with infinite banking is your behavior in terms of how you treat your system. And I think that's one of the things that makes people fearful is because they can't really quantify the risk the way they can in other investments that are out there. Like you can quantify the risk in the market because you can look at the the rate of return, you know, long term or whatever. So you can sort of quantify, not that past performance is any any indication of future results, but you can sort of quantify that a little bit. When you start to take control and when you start to bring that into your own life where now you are making the decisions and um, have some say in what's going on, you can't quantify that risk profile. And I think that's one of the things that people have a hard time with. It's like when you talk about behavior being the real risk and everything, well, behavior is not the real risk whenever you're just handing your money over to someone else. The risk is the volatility going up and down. And when you tell people that volatility, volatility is no longer part of the equation, that's something else that people have a hard time with is understanding that you can actually remove the, the factor of volatility when it comes to the growth of your money. You know, I think when it comes to emotions, majority of the reasons why people have emotions around their money and, and the investments that they have is due to the fact that they don't actually have um, conviction in principles and rules around where their money is, why their money is there, and how they're investing. Um, I have a friend, he always complains to me about his advisor about how you know he's his money's not doing anything in the market he feels like he's doing better and then and i ask him okay well how you know how often are you looking at your portfolio he's like man i'm looking at it multiple times a week and i'm like okay well that's your problem most people put the money in their market the stock portfolio bond portfolio for long-term growth so that one day someday they could hopefully retire so you constantly looking at it every single day every week is only going to hurt your um, hurt your mindset and your emotions. If you're going to be putting money in the market, whether that's your retirement account or regular brokerage account, HSA, whatever, you, you should understand with full conviction, like, hey, this is for a long-term play. And you could probably say, yeah, maybe I'll get 5% over the long term as I'm, as I'm going out, right? after fees, after taxes and all that. So it shouldn't be something that you look at. But when it comes to other things, um, whether that's real estate or businesses, you are the one that has to keep in check with your emotions. Like for me, uh, when I'm buying real estate properties, some of them, if they're investments for me, I know the ones in Ohio, I never saw them. I didn't need to because I trusted the partner that was doing it with me. 
and I understood, and I knew that he was on the ground. He's seen it. He's walked through it. He knows the numbers, and I was able to fund it, and we knew how it worked, and we would be able to check in. So I had checks and balances and rules to not only help with the investment, but also help with my emotions. So I think that, you know, the only reason that a lot of people have massive emotions around their finances is one, because, you know, they're on this race to 65 and, and they're trying to make sure that they have a big enough nest egg when they get there. And the second would be they don't actually have uh, conviction, knowledge, principles, rules around how they're handling their money and why. And if you can begin to implement those and review those and understand why you're doing the things you're doing with your money, that would help eliminate a lot of the emotional roller coaster that you have with your money. So true. I think about it this way in the examples you guys have just given in real life uh, examples from members of both of our practices. When you when you're able to sit down and visit with someone about their current flow of money in their life, no matter how it's flowing. And I'm talking about all the way from how they're protecting themselves with their insurance, wills and trust, uh, how money flows as far as where they save it, when they save it, why they save it, who they save it with. And you put all that on on a clear playing board. And you go, okay, is this for sure all your moving pieces? And they go, yes. And then you start asking questions of, okay, how, where do you want to get on this playing board? I really want to be over here by this time. I can tell you this unequivocally every time that those questions come up, the person's idea of how long it's going to take them to get there is around 65. Okay. If they're in the traditional mindset, traditional retirement savings, those kind of things. I see it over and over again. We all do. Then you ask a question of, okay, with all these moving pieces, are you certain you're going to get there? And are you going to get there with the amount of resources that will allow you to live the next 20, 30, 40 years the way you want to? And the answer is almost always, no, I'm not certain. So then if you zoom back out and you go, okay, if we can take all these moving pieces and we can show you why you would want to do certain things and you be at peace with it, to allow you to get to those places and most likely much sooner. Is there any reason you wouldn't want to? And the answer is always no, there's no reason. Except when we start telling them the vehicles of how to do that and through what, and then all these half truths or misconceptions come in and now they got to start going through the mental hurdles of, Ooh, what do I really believe about whole life insurance? Where did my belief system come from that? Why do I have this misconception? Where did I get it from? What did my advisor say? All these things start coming up and that doesn't scare us or concern us in our conversations every day. Cause we, I went through this, Nate went through this. Okay. What it does is it allows to ask more deep and probing questions, which then gets you to the root of why are you doing what you're doing? And Brock, you say this a lot. Your dad says it. We say it now. There's a big difference in statement wealth and contract wealth. Okay. And I can tell you with certainty, and we can touch on this real quick. I want as much contract wealth as I can possibly get. Statement wealth is just a piece of paper until I put it to work. Okay. 
So like James Nethery said at the think tank a year or two ago, he said, you only, you only realize the need for certainty and control of your capital when you see something that's a great opportunity and you want to take action on it and you can or can't. So that's one way. Or you have an emergency in life and you are beholden to someone else because you do or don't have control of capital. You really break it down to that. That's where emotion comes in. So anyone listening, think about how many opportunities that you've seen cross your eyes, your heart, your mind, and you go, I have no capital to put into this while you've got 100, 200, 500 grand sitting somewhere locked up for the next 30 years. And then someone else who goes, well, I take advantage of all these opportunities I believe in, like Brock mentioned in real estate, because I know well that that fits my investment DNA, as some people say, and I have the capital to put it to work while not risking my original contractual wealth and how that is set up in a whole life insurance policy. Okay. So I know we all have real life examples. Brock, you just gave one as far as real estate. A lot of times you'll ask people, why do you want to invest in real estate? And the first time that you ask somebody that they really can't tell you why I couldn't have told you why five years ago, I still think I'm figuring out why. Okay. But the deeper and closer we get to the answer of why, the better action steps we can take next, which puts us in the driver's seat to go, okay, now I know I'm headed in that direction. And I know if I don't get there, it's because of my behavior, not anyone else's. And that's a much different feeling than I'm doing everything I can to get to where I want to go, but I still may not make it because of someone else's behavior, including my behavior and my understanding of it. So Let's talk real quick, because I think this will connect to, we're going to dive into how a whole life policy works just a little bit, not too deep. Let's talk real quick about contract wealth and statement wealth. So Nate, dive into that real quick and Brock, tidy it up if we miss anything. So um, something that, that Trent says often with contract wealth, essentially what we're doing is we are connecting a guaranteed event, which is death with a guaranteed contract through a whole life insurance policy. And the value of having that death, that ever increasing death benefit all along the way is that, that you have much more freedom to enjoy your assets. You have permission to spend, uh, so to speak. And so having that solving for that piece early on gives you the ability to really enjoy what you are building what you are creating um as as parents we love the idea of leaving something to our kids one day um brandon i know and and brock i know both of your parents and i know them well enough to know that they like the idea of being able to pass something on to the kids and grandkids one day. My parents are the same way. My mom and stepdad are the same way. They want to be able to pass things on to the kids and grandkids one day. So having that peace of mind of knowing that something is always going to be left, something's always going to be left over. And now we get to enjoy what we've built what we've created and we don't have to hold back 
because we still want to leave something to the kids and grandkids. Now we get both. We get yep. to, <laughs> um, as we say so often, we get to uh, have our cake and eat it too. Yep. Uh, Grant Cardone said before, if, if, if I'm having cake, I'm going to eat it. Um, and <laughs> you know what that, what that really boils down to is understanding the principle of leverage. Um, because leverage is ingrained in everything that we teach, but leverage does not equal risk. Mm, there you go. And that's something that people need to understand is that leverage does not equal risk. Improper use of leverage equals risk, mm -hmm. but properly understanding how to apply the principle of leverage in your life can create massive amounts of freedom. That's good. So leverage does not have to equal risk. I'm really glad that you made that point because I'm going to tell you the way my brain has been wired for the first 30 ish years before I understood this awesome mindset and the approach that we now live leverage had a negative connotation. I still have to fight it. I feel it. The minute I hear leverage, I go, ah, I kind of panic a little bit because, and I think if I feel that way coming from the traditional world of finance, doing all the traditional things, I would imagine most people feel that way. So Brock, when you hear leverage does not have to equal risk, how does that tie into contract versus statement wealth in your perspective? Yeah. So, you know, let me first touch on the fact that, you know, statement wealth is when we're basically receiving a statement from somebody else and the risk is on us, right? That would be like a brokerage account. You put money in, they send you the statement, all the risk is on you, right? Contract wealth could be something like um, whole life insurance or an annuity or something where you give the institution the money, they take the risk, and you have the contract that they have to uphold, right? And when I think of leverage, even as somebody who's come from a world of using leverage all the time, I do still grimace a little bit because I know what happens if you over leverage. Uh, and I, I think what has you, there's all kinds of different leverage, right? There's leverage in knowledge, there's leverage in relationships, there's leverage in, in money, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you're going to leverage, you need to understand why you're going to do it, how you're going to do it. You know, what's the downside? What's the top side? Um, and, you know, how are you going to make sure that you don't put yourself in a position where you over leverage and get over your skis and get burnt? Because that is extremely easy to do um, if you're not careful. Brock, um, I think we have all talked about this and, and I'll use a very real example of my life right now. We've done several fix and flips in other parts of the country and the, uh, in the U S and several of them have gone great, no issues, no hiccups. And when things go great, you think you have good systems in place. Okay. Mm -hmm. When poop hits the fan, you realize very quick that your systems suck at worst or at best they need a lot of refining. Okay. Mm -hmm. And 
the amount of bandwidth it has taken for me, my brother, our investors on these two deals that I'm thinking about has made it much more clear for what the rules will be and how I invest moving forward. So Brock, you just said something. You said getting over leveraged is probably, I'm paraphrasing, probably the more concerning thing than really panicking about the word leverage. I think that's really a good example of what I'm feeling also, because I'm experiencing getting over leveraged and that's not a comfortable feeling. But being over leveraged could happen whether I'm using policy loans or bank loans or private investor loans or a combination of all three, which is the case in this example. I can tell you for sure the part of the investments, the fix and flips that are tied to policy loans, I'm way less stressed about. And I think there's a great lesson in there. So your dad says this often, and, and I'm experiencing it, not for the good, but I know how to for the good moving forward. Give me three, four, five, six, seven, eight different four, five, six, seven percent rates of return working together all day long. Over one lump sum rate of return that's 15 to 20 to 25 percent with all the risk associated to it. So, this is what I mean by that to bring it back to contract wealth or statement wealth. Contractually, because I have whole life insurance policies that give me the permission to borrow against, against, keyword, the cash value that I've created by how I've made deposits into my systems, gives me the freedom to determine what investments it goes into and how and when and why and where I use them and repay them. All the while, my contract is still growing the original deposits, premiums paid into those whole life policies. Contractually, guaranteed. So even though this investment has really been a kick in the groin and not been fun, if the good Lord took me today, I have so much peace of mind knowing because I've captured what insurance companies will allow me to be insured for, which is maximally the most they'll allow me for based off a hundred years of data. It's so freeing to know, even though I chased risk and didn't do it well in these projects, if the good Lord takes me today, my family will have to worry about nothing. That burden will not continue. It will in fact be wiped away easily. They can clear it and be well off, hopefully with the knowledge of what to do with it with the connections I've made over the years and who that they know to go to that I'm continuing to refine. So the whole idea of security and risk is really just what we think we know about how money really works. And one of the things that I think that we do that is so fun, probably makes it one of the best parts of my job every day is when somebody's eyes light up and go, I can create the life I want for the purpose that I know I'm called for with less risk, more certainty, more control, and it's probably going to happen faster because the creative juices start flowing because the risk is removed. That There's no better feeling. I'm getting chills saying it in my world to see people's eyes go, ah, I don't have to do what I'm doing or I can keep doing what I'm doing with the peace of mind that I'm headed in the right direction. So 
I want to touch on a point real quick of the historical prowess or, or impact that whole life insurance companies have that I just don't think most people understand how stable they are. Y'all give a, just a, a, a quick note, if you will, uh, of the, the impact of a whole life insurance company that's been around forever and the stability of it. So one thing that I think is important for people to understand is that banks actually, contrary to what Dave Ramsey has said on the air, banks actually yeah. do own whole life insurance. Um, they own billions and billions of dollars of whole life insurance. It is their tier one asset, which means it's the most stable asset they can list on their balance sheet. That's important to understand. Um, these mutual insurance companies are probably the most financially stable institutions in the last 150 years because you go all all the way back to depressions and recessions when banks are like tightening up and not loaning money to people these mutual insurance companies are still posting profits and paying dividends to their customers and still loaning money to their customers during this time um you know there is there's so much more peace of mind today for me knowing that I'm with a, a institution that has that type of track record. Something that is a backdrop that I can depend on that. I don't have to go to sleep at night wondering if the stock market's going to tank tomorrow and all my money's going to be gone. Um, so yeah, the, the, the track record and the history of the life insurance industry, uh, I think is really powerful. And it's something that's often misunderstood. Yeah, I would add to that, that, you know, there's a big difference in the life insurance companies that you use. There's a difference between a stock insurance company, like a Primerica, Prudential, Pacific Life, that type companies, compared to mutual insurance companies, which are your Penn Mutuals, New York Life, your Guardian, your Mass Mutual, those type companies. And the difference being that mutual companies are private companies. I mean, like, for example, Penn Mutual has been around since 1847. Well, they're not having to report to the stock market every 90 days on what they're doing, how they're doing, what they're up to. They get to invest on much longer time horizons and they get to invest in a more secure way, I would say, than what a typical stock insurance company might be able to do. Stock insurance companies may be bigger, um, but what we what we see is that often, you know, the private mutual companies are more stable. They've gone throughout it um, all the time uh, throughout our entire country. Like Penn Mutual, for example, they haven't ever missed a dividend in 176 years. The only time that they didn't pay one out was the year of the Civil War. And instead of paying it that year, they paid it the next year. So, I mean, you have all of these different things that they've been through and been able to stabilize through and continue growing. And I think that's just a testament to where things are going. And if you wanted to go look up what Nate was talking about with the banks, and then buying life insurance assets. You can go to the FDIC.gov and pick your bank and go to line 41 on their balance sheet and you will see life insurance assets. Love it. So one of the key things I hear people say often, I think I even said it early on in my journey, 
is, well, I'm a numbers guy. I need to see the numbers. So when I get to form these solid relationships with people, because it becomes a personal interaction, the minute someone starts sharing their financial plans with you and I get to know them well, uh, oftentimes the conversation comes up and I'll say, I was often a numbers guy too, but now what I know that are the most important numbers, I'm going to link it to the place that the majority, if not all of my money goes to, and that's companies that have been around for hundreds of years, hundred plus years that I'm now a private owner in their profitability and their growth and their stability. And I'm getting to benefit from the use of properly leveraging the cash value in those companies. So I think if you removed whole life insurance and I came to anybody on the street and I said, Hey, I've got a company that I want you to have the opportunity to invest in. That's been around for 150 plus years. They paid dividends through the civil war. They pay dividends through the Great Depression. They pay dividends through World War One and Two, the stock market crashes, without fail, and you're able to have protection upon your death and leverage the cash you put in there. I think anybody would go. I'm very interested in buying some stock in that company. So that's the numbers I look at, and the other numbers I look at are actuarial science is one of the most sound ways to. It's been baffling to me as I've begun to learn how actuarial scientists evaluate numbers over long ranges of time, like you said, Brock, and how stable it is. My go-to line often is, is that my money now goes to a place where they know where I'm going to die probably closer to the day in theory than G just about anybody other than Jesus. <laughs> There's nowhere else I can put my money where I can say that. I don't know how long a bank's going to stay open. I don't know how long a stock market or stock's going to stay good, but these whole life insurance, these mutual companies with these whole life policies have been doing this math forever. Okay. And they're really, really good at it. And I don't want to nerd out on you, but I've had, I've heard actuarious talk and it's, it's fascinating. They don't think about just tomorrow. They think about trends over 30, 40, 50 years, well beyond their living years. So, if you, if you really need to see the numbers, well, that's to me the most sound place to possibly ever go with how numbers work. So I'll add to yeah. that, Brandon. Yeah, go ahead. Brandon. I'll first say that most people aren't actually numbers, number sure. people, because if you were to say, you know, if they come to you and say, oh, well, I'm a numbers guy, all you really have to say is, okay, well, let's see your numbers. Show me where you've, <laughs> act, show me where you've done the math. Yep. And what I have found is that most people, haven't actually done the math. And if they did, they did them incorrectly because they're not actually numbers people. Mm -hmm. What people actually want is to be led in a life that actually is producing the results that they want at their core rather than what they think. Right. Yep. And, and I, and I can say with firsthand experience, because I'm a part of a fraternity of actuaries, that they are the geekiest, nerdiest, weirdest people ever. And their numbers are correct. I think that's a that's a good way to to end up for today is just the reality that what we have been taught about money and math is jaded at best, misguided. And we say this often, uh, and we took it from your dad, who I think took it from maybe uh, Bob Castellon and Leap, is money is not math and math isn't always money. 
And that's a really hard thing for people to wrap their brain around. But what you just said hit the nail on the head, Brock, in regard to people are less worried about their numbers if they can see for sure how they're going to get where they want to get. You could say, I can show you for sure how to get from point A to point Z with peace of mind, clarity, certainty, control, and they could care less about the rate of return. So it's really about living a purpose driven life, if you will, to do the things, you know, you're called to do, because we really only have one, one life on this earth and money's just going to be the accelerator or the deteriorator of that life we're living one or the other. So actionable insights or uh, tips to kind of tidy up would be if this at all intrigues you go through our process, shoot us an email at cashflowlegends with a Z at gmail.com. Connect with us, see what we're all about, see how it works, see how it's impacted our lives. We'll share uh, real life client uh, testimonials with you. And um, then you can really decide if you think you know what you know about things, which is always a fun experience for everybody. Uh, until the next time, we appreciate your time today. Hope it's been valuable to you and we'll catch you on the next one.